Thank you, Alex and Jordan, for leading us in our worship thus far. And it has been good to again have our attention drawn to the Lord Jesus and to the Almighty God, who is all powerful and all knowing, and creator and sustainer of all things. And now, as we continue in our worship, we're going to open the scriptures together and continue in our series of First Timothy. And we'll be looking at the first eight verses of chapter 2 in First Timothy. So follow along as, you, as I read this uh, to you. So that's First Timothy chapter 2, commencing at verse 1. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth and I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we do give thanks for the gospel. We give thanks for the amazing grace that we have sung of in the gospel where Jesus Christ died for our sin. And by believing we go free, we are delivered. And so Father, we thank you for the opportunity to serve you and to walk in godliness and righteousness. Help us in this, Lord. We acknowledge to you our often failure and our weakness in this. But Lord, we need your strength. May your spirit be ever present and filling us so that we do that. And so Lord, we thank you for the offering that has been given. We thank you for the memory of yourself we thank you for the wonderful gospel and even at this time we think of Tim and Janice and Darwin and we pray for them Lord that your word might have free course and be glorified to the salvation of precious souls and so father as we continue looking at your word this morning father we pray that you would bless us and challenge us and change us for your name's sake in Jesus name amen at the height of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, that great German reformer, once thundered, prayer is the mightiest of all weapons that created natures can wield. And it's from this statement we learn the secret source of strength of this powerful figure in church history. And as a matter of fact, the demands of ministry during this period were so great upon this 16th century reformer that he was heard once to quip, 
I have so much to do today, I must spend three more hours this morning in prayer. Such was the pivotal role that prayer played in the life of this prominent reformer. In other words, Martin Luther took seriously the subject of our text before us today. He did not see prayer as a last resort or some mere religious practice that may be included in one's already busy, busy schedule. No, he didn't see it that way. Prayer was to Luther, as it should be to every believer and in every Bible-believing church, a first and foremost absolute priority. But I ask myself, and I pray that you would ask yourselves, why is it that prayer is often the most poorly attended and ranked worship function of the church? That's a serious question that needs some honest and I believe repentant answers so that we as a church can turn this drought around can I say? And as I say this, I'm not standing up here speaking as one who has arrived at this. I'm not speaking as one who has it all together when it comes to the priority of prayer. As a matter of fact, I need to take the log out of my own eye before I look at the speck in yours, right? I need to challenge myself as I trust you will challenge yourselves on the great need for praying, especially praying evangelistically in this church and as a church. Jordan in his message last week asked some challenging questions about our evangelism practices. He asked and said to the words of this effect, do we plead, do we call the lost to come to Christ for salvation? Great questions. Can I further ask, both myself and you all, how concerned are we with people around us who are perishing without Jesus Christ? Do we pray? Do we care more about our own comfort and financial gain than we do about people dying without the Savior? Do we pray? Do we go on about our business day after day, week after week, without any burden for those who need to know Christ as Savior? Folks, do we pray? I face you all with this because I honestly believe we all, and I'm including myself in that, to some degree underestimate the value and we lack faith in this good Christian work. We tend to see prayer as an optional extra in our Christian walk or for those times when our backs are up against the wall or for when all else fails, we then turn to prayer. We often see prayer as a mere attachment and maybe in a possible 
escape hatch from the dilemma we may find ourselves in. Rather than seeing and valuing prayer as a work of God in us and through us that serves Him and brings Him glory. And so often, I might say, when we do pray, our prayers can be so consumed with ourselves. So consumed with our health and well-being, so consumed with our careers, our ministries, our church, our friends, our children, so often our prayers are all about us. Let me ask you, I'm hitting myself here as I say it again. I'm really burdened of the preparing this message. Let me ask you, when was the last time we prayed together as a church in earnest for the souls of lost people? When was the last time we as a church made a concerted effort to be at the prayer meeting so that we can pray specifically that God might save lost people? When was the last time? I can't remember. We've had bits and pieces and here and there. And I know that I have failed you in this. I honestly know that. My example and my encouragement has not struck evidently a chord with you to pray this way. So I ask you this morning to forgive me for that. I dearly want to see this turned around, folks in my own life and especially in the life of this church because this is all about evangelistic prayer, this section. As a church, we're not talking about individual prayer here. It's as a church because you'll remember it was Timothy's job to put things in order in the church at Ephesus. My prayer is that this church here at New Community, we will be committed prayers and that this church will, will make prayer for the lost a priority. And so as we look at our text this morning, allow the Spirit of God impress upon us all the need to be obedient and committed prayers for spiritually lost people. Amen? My first point that I've got, our first priority is to pray. We see this in verses 1 and 2. I love what Steve Lawson wrote in his book. It was a little book I've got in my library called a a symposium on prayer. And, uh, well, it wasn't called that, sorry. It was a symposium. That was a tagline, but the, the title of it was called Let Us Pray. And he shares this book with other writers, but his, his words in it, and I quote here, he says, Prayer is the infinite power of God committed to the hand of mere finite man. It is the closest that man can come to wielding divine omnipotence. Nothing can prevail against prayer, not even Satan and hell itself. Yet tragically, prayer is often the most neglected of all Christian disciplines and our lives and ministries suffer for it, end quote. And so as we come to this chapter, we see how Paul really begins to lay out the order and the conduct that Timothy needs to be practicing and teaching in this church at Ephesus. 
As we have discussed, we know at Ephesus, at this age and stage of the church, false teachers had crept in, and some in the church, we're not saying all, but some in the church were being swayed by this false gospel that these false teachers were advocating. And so Paul instructs timid Timothy. We find that he was a timid guy as we go into the next epistle. He instructs timid Timothy on the things that needed to be set in order in the church. You see, it was Timothy's responsibility to do this as we looked at last time we were together here because he had been divinely appointed for the ministry, chapter 1, verse 18. So it was his responsibility to know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and supporter of truth, which is the crux of what this little letter is all about. Chapter 3, verse 15. And one vital area that needed serious attention in this church was setting aright an anti-evangelistic snobbery that had crept into the church. It seems that some were viewing the gospel as being only for a select few people. And we believe that some were viewing the gospel here as being primarily and only for Jewish people. Because the false teachers were of Jewish origin. And so here we see in verse 1, Paul begins with a first of all. You see that in your Bibles? First of all. Don't skip over that because this is vitally important. This statement signals out not so much the importance of timing of prayer, but more the priority of prayer's importance in evangelism. It seems that this church, like many churches today, had lost sight of their real mission on earth. In other words, they had become consumed with themselves. But more tragically, they had lost sight, or can I say they had lost faith, in the real source and avenue of power for this mission on earth to be effective. They had lost sight of how God responds and listens and hears prayer for the lost. And folks, we know that the primary mission on earth is still the same today, right? It's still the same. If the primary mission on earth was for us to have fellowship, if the primary mission of the church on earth was is to be well taught and to be sanctified, you know what God would do? He would zap us straight to heaven the moment we came to Christ. He would usher us to heaven to accomplish that. He'd do it far better. But no, here we are still all in body, mind, and soul on earth. And the central function of the church on earth is to go into all the world and make disciples. In other words, to reach the lost for Christ for the glory of God. Matthew 28 19, the Great Commission as we call it. Some have referred it to as the great omission because we have lost sight in many ways of what this means. And so Paul knew the Ephesian believers. He knew that they would never get involved in this as long as they were entrenched in their exclusive views of who the gospel was for. They needed to understand that the full breadth of the gospel call was for Jews, yes, for Gentiles, yes, for the rich, for the poor, for the red, the yellow, the black, and the white, for the whosoever. That's what they needed to understand. 
And so Paul puts here before Timothy, first of all, you see that? First of all, they as a church, we as a church, need to understand that the gospel is made effective in the lives of the lost when first of all, evangelistic prayer is practiced in earnest. That's an awesome priority, isn't it? In other words, prayer for the lost is to be an absolute priority for this church. We see then in our text that Paul urges, that's what I've got in my Bible, Paul urges, I urge. That word means it's, it's, it's not a command as such, but what Paul does here is he speaks from a, a passionate heart and he pleads with Timothy to teach believers how to pray for the lost. How to pray for the lost. And so how were they to pray for the lost? How are we to pray for the lost? Let's look at the text. We're to pray for the lost with supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings. See that? Let's look at what they mean. Just briefly, we pray with supplications or your translation may have been treaties. That's fair enough. And what that means is... What that means is that we, um, we're to pray for... Oops, I've gone too far and I'll miss something out there. Who are we to pray for? How are we to pray? Okay. With supplications and entreaties, that is, we're to pray because, you know, for a lost person to come to Christ, we need God's power to save. And only God can supply that saving power, right? Only God can supply the power to save a person. And so we need to pray. The next one is we offer up prayers. This is when we call upon God himself in reverence and worship and, and humility and, and to save lost people or, or perhaps to give us more wisdom or perhaps even to revive us so that his grace might spread through us to a lost world for his glory. So we are moved to prayer. How are we to pray also? We're to bringing our petitions. What this means is we bring our petitions to God. What this means is it has the idea of, of being intimate with God. Intimate with God about specific issues and people who are lost. And so you might know people who have got terrible issues in their lives and, they, and they're lost without Christ and they're going to hell. Talk about God. Talk to God about that. It's where you bear your heart to God about the personal lost condition of someone. So you and we should be moved to pray. We also, in our prayers, how we offer up thanksgiving. This is praying with a spirit of gratitude at all times. It tells us that praying for the lost also includes our, our expressing our gratitude to God for extending his great offer of mercy and salvation to all, to whosoever. And might I say, it's also thanking him for the privilege of being involved in this mighty worldwide mission. We've just learnt we're involved in Darwin. So we should be moved to prayer. And so the point of these four words is that we have, we have different needs at different times, but at all times we need God and therefore we need to pray. 
But not only do we need all kinds of prayer, but also we need to pray for all kinds of people. And so this brings us to who are we to pray for? Who are we to pray for? As I suggested, our prayers are so often narrow in their scope. And we can all be caught up, including myself, in this. We can be some, so insular and exclusive, so narrow-minded in our prayers. Our personal wants and needs, our close circle of friends and family and our church too often steal the full scope of our prayers. But look what Paul says here. Look what he says here. He says, supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for who? All people, for kings and all who are high position. You see that? Now that's pretty broad, isn't it? That's a massive scope of prayer material. In other words, no person is too far gone, too lost in sin, whom God's grace cannot reach. That's great news, isn't it? Nor is there any person so high and mighty or in such a position of authority who does not need God's grace in their lives. Now maybe you cannot speak to a specific person about God. But you can always speak to God about that specific person. Right? So there, we can pray for our Prime Minister and for our Premier and for governors and mayors and so forth. Places of authority. You see, folks, all people are sinners who need to know God as Saviour. Now you're getting to think, wow, yes, but look what that man stands for. He stands for a real loose, liberal, immoral position. He's, yeah, and he's so blatant in it. He hates Christians. And, oh, wow, how can I pray? If you think it's hard to pray for members of our state or members of our federal parliament, and even go wider worldwide, if you think it's hard to pray for Mr. Trump, have a thought for the people whom Paul urged to pray for. Because in their day, this all man included a cruel, blaspheming maniac called Nero. He was a man who both executed Peter and Paul. He was also infamous in the history books for capturing Christians and dousing them in flammable pitch and setting them alight as human torches to light up his gardens at night time. That's the kind of debauched person Nero was. And yet Paul does not call this church in Ephesus to political revolution. You know what he calls them to? He calls them to prayer. Although Nero was a vile, debauched persecutor of believers, they were still to pray for his redemption, not for removal of office, but to pray for his salvation. Thus, the plan of God involves all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And of course, we need to ask, why? Why should we pray for those in authority? The answer is clear here, but sad to say, it is often misunderstood. Now, just bear with me here. Listen carefully. 
The text says it's in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's what the text says. That's the, that's the reason why we pray for those in authority. Now, so that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, I can look at that one way and say, oh yes, I would love that. But it's not about living a cozy, comfortable life where we can do our own thing without any disrupt, uh, disruption to that cozy comfort. It's not about that at all. This is about praying that those in authority would govern so that we might not suffer any civil or political disturbances. And you might say, why? Why is that? Why? So that nothing would appear, impair our ability to be godly and dignified. You see that? You see, the key to this statement is in those two words, godliness and dignity. These two words carry the idea of a right attitude and on the other side, a right behavior. They are observable things. They are observable things. Things that are seen in our lives. And as we know, the old adage that says, Actions speak louder than words. This is what's behind all this. And often they do, don't they? You see, godliness and dignity, they both point to the, an outward display of Christian virtues. You see, what Paul is concerned here is with the Ephesian believers is their testimony. And he's still concerned, the, the Lord is still concerned also about the testimony of his people in any kind of political environment. Be it ours, where ethics and morality is down the tubes, or going down the tube, or be it in an environment where you have a warmongering dictator in the hot seat. Whatever the case, the idea is that we should pray for political peace so that we can live in observable godliness so that lost people will see Christ in us. That's the picture. And that will be a step. That will be what God uses to bring them to salvation. That's what we pray for our authorities for. So as we have looked at the how and the who of our prayers, now we need to look at the why should we pray for unsaved people. Why should we look pray for unsaved people we see this in verses three to seven now i want to put a bit of a codicil on this statement here because on this section because i understand that some may not be happy with what i say but i need to be true to my long-held convictions here okay so let's show some grace as we work through this and if necessary Let's agree to disagree agreeably. What we have here in this section is one of the most conclusive statements in all of Scripture about the saving purposes of God. We need to note the words, first of all, good, and you have a look in your text, good, acceptable, and desire. Okay? And verses 3 and four. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So keep your eye or mind on those three words. In other words, a reason why prayer for the lost is to be a priority is it's in line with what God is doing in His world. 
That's why it's good and acceptable in his sight. It's good and acceptable. In other words, it's a noble and a moral thing to do because we know, now that we are believers, we know what we were like before we came to Christ and we certainly know as we look at the the morass of humanity around us, we know the emptiness and the suffering and the futility in this life. But we also know of the eternal agonies of a pending hell for these people to come because that's what the Bible teaches. And so because of that understanding, it's a right and proper thing to pray for a sinner's salvation. And on top of all this, we see that praying evangelistically is in line with God's desire for all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here's the second word. Now, this is common ground for those of us who would call ourselves reformed and also for those who would shy away from this theological name tag. It's common ground. We all believe that God's desire is for all men to be saved. Scriptures attest to this. This has always been God's desire, if you want to put it that way. It's interesting to see that desire and will here are exactly the same words, but each word may be different in its context. Context rules, right? For example, he told Ezekiel in chapter 33, verse 11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that wicked, the wicked man will turn from his way and live. And we heard last week from Jordan, Isaiah 55 and verses 1 and the following verses, how God invites everyone who thirsts to come to the waters of salvation. God further expresses the same idea in John 3.16, which we all know so well. For God so loved the world. We have the word whosoever in that verse, which encapsulates the breadth of this. The Apostle Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fill his promise, as some count slackness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Common ground. We all understand that. So let me summarize what we've had thus far. Here it is. When Christians pray for civil rulers so that there is peace, It allows for the gospel to be preached and men to be saved, which is good and acceptable in the sight of God who desires salvation for all people. That's where we are so far. But it's here we might ask, if God desires all to be saved, if that's his will, the same kind of word, it is the same word, even in the Greek, why aren't all men saved? Or another way, if God is not willing for any to perish, how come many do and will? This is where both the Reformed and those who are not so come a little unstuck, and it's to do with how we understand God's will or God's desire or even His love. As I said before, the word will and desire is the same. So bear with me, please. God has a love and a desire for the entire world of people. None of us deny that. Scriptures teach that. But I believe it's clear in Scripture that in addition to this, He has a special love 
for his own people. Just as he has a desire for all men, within that general holistic desire, Scripture teaches he has a specific successful desire or will for his, and here's the word that many people don't like, his elect, but I'll use it as a, it's a biblical word, for his chosen ones. He has a special love for those chosen in Christ by himself before the foundation of the world. Don't look at me, just look at Ephesians chapter 1. And you'll find that it's clear. In other words, he does not simply love us generally and desire us to be saved, but he loves us specifically. And hence what he does in that specific love, he effectually and successfully calls us to himself by his grace through faith. Just like he specifically loved Jacob and he passed by Esau. Matter of fact, just to bring out and draw out the comparison there, he uses Esau, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, Romans chapter 9 verse 13. He does that to emphasize the difference between the general and the specific. Jesus speaks too, by the way, of this in John chapter 6. How the Father specifically, one by one, draws those whom the Father has given to Christ to salvation. That's what it says. Some of us in our home groups have been looking at John chapter 17. This is where it's known as Jesus' intercessory prayer, where he prays to the Father before he's crucified. And he prays there especially and specifically for his people. In fact, he says, if you will remember, this is what he says, I do not pray for the, listen, I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. So let me say here, Scripture clearly teaches of God's general love and desire for the world of humanity, but there is a special saving love and desire for the multitude of His chosen. This is very important to understand as we come to this section because understanding that God's desires for all men to be saved, you know what it stops? It stops the likes of us from being elitists. It stops the likes of reformed people, can I put it that way, from being elitist. It stops us from being neglectful and praying for the salvation of all kinds of people out of the morass of humanity. You know why? Because we have no idea who God in eternity past has set his special love upon. And so we're to treat every person we come across as a candidate for God's special love. Preach the gospel. Love them in the gospel. I like how one commentator put it, and I'll read his words. The scriptures teach God's love for the world, his displeasure in judging sinners, his desire for all to hear the gospel and be saved. They also teach that every sinner is incapable yet responsible to believe and will be damned if he does not. Crowning the Scripture's teaching on this matter is the great truth that God has elected who will believe, who will believe and save them before the world began. What a mystery. End quote. 
You know, Paul was also astonished. The Apostle Paul was astonished, astounded. In colloquial expression, he was gobsmacked at this stage of God's revelation. And you know what he said in Revelation chapter 11, 33, 34, after discussing and, and revealing all these kinds of truths, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? And so he leaves it all to God. He doesn't understand it. He cannot plummet the depths. And so our reason to pray evangelistically, it is good and acceptable in God's sight and it is in line with God's desire for all men to be saved. But we do see another vital reason here to pray for the lost. Paul says something in verses 5 and 6 that is so politically incorrect in our day and age. In some states, you probably get called up and put before the magistrate for saying this, and I may even be too, because this is going on internet and out all over for people to read. But this is what he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Why should we pray for all people? Here's why. Because there's only one God, there's only one Savior, there's only one mediator, and His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Therefore, Christ alone is the one and only hope for all humanity. Why? Because He's the one and only ransom price paid for our sin that was acceptable to God. No matter what you pay, what you do, nothing is acceptable by Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That was the ransom price for our sin that God accepted. Nothing else, no one else. And the price for our sin has been paid in full. That's great news, right? What awesome news is that? In other words, what he says, Paul says here, all roads don't lead to the top of the mountain. He's saying there are not many ways to God. And so this is why we had to pray for the lost. You see, out of the multiplicity of religions, gods and faiths and worldviews out there, there is only one way to eternal life, one way for eternal salvation. And you know these truths so well, I'm sure. Oh, how we need to pray that people would find this narrow and exclusive way through God's truth alone, by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. How will they call on him, though, in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? We see here in this text that Paul was the appointed preacher. And might I say, every single one of you, that's your mission on earth, is to be a witness and a preacher of the gospel. Some are more gifted in that than others, but you still have a responsibility of being a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you're all appointed, folks. You're all appointed, and you have a mission. We have a mission. This church has a mission. And it starts, first of all, with praying for the lost. We're all sent and we all need to pray that God's power through His Spirit 
may be wielded effectively for the salvation of sinners. And finally, our attitude to the priority of prayer, we see this in verse 8. We see this in verse 8. The word therefore in verse 8 indicates that this is connected with what has been said and uh, many would put it into the next section but I believe it's connected here because uh, I was taught right back in ACM, you know, when you see the word therefore you ask what's therefore and so therefore it must be there because of what's already been said. And, uh, and so we won't move from that. And, um, and so what Paul has here, he has his eye on the men in the assembly as he addresses the woman, women also in the following verses. It's still to do with evangelistic prayer. Simply put, for evangelistic prayer to be effective, Paul wants, he used the word wants, you see that? This word is, is a powerful word, it's a strong word. Actually, it could be interpreted commands. It just about carries the same cloud as that. And he wants that men of the church take the lead in this priority ministry. Now, this is not the response of the elders or for the mission uh, person in the church or, or for the pastor to pray only. No, when prayer for the lost is made by the church, we can all pray. But here it is clear that the men are to lead in this act of worship. Now, you listen up here, men. You've got a heap of opportunity to pray in this church. My wife and I enjoyed a time of prayer in there this morning. There were some other men floating around here. I'm getting up close and personal, but that's okay. You know me 15 years now. I feel I've got the right to say these things in grace and in love. On Wednesday night, as we gathered together, you men, it's your responsibility to pray for the lost. When we have our quarterly church prayer meetings, which I might say can be attended far more passionately and vigorously, you men, it's our responsibility to pray for the lost, to lead in that, that worship. We're not we're to be forward, we're not to be slacking, we're, we're, we're to be coming forward and willingly praying for lost people. But that's not all. Our prayers for the lost are to be what? With holy hands, without wrath, wrath and dissension you see that now this is not about our posture in prayer it's not saying that we lift up our hands etc etc or do whatever um, you can do that if you wish uh, it's not nothing to do it's not so much about our posture when we pray but it's all about attitude and dare I say it when you pray you need to pray with attitude the right attitude Simply put, folks, when we as a church come together to pray, if our lives are not right with the Lord, if we have, not, if we have unconfessed sin in our lives, if we are not holy in heart and deed, you know what? Our prayers are pointless. As we look around the world, our country, it is easy to be angry and upset at the system and the evil politicians and the injustices that prevail and the, and the morality that has been just been thrown overboard, etc. But we're not allowed that to upset us. We're not, that must not be so among us for those who desire to pray for the lost. We must intercede for the lost having the same attitude. Here's the attitude we're to have 
and especially the men here, not saying the women aren't have this attitude as well, but we'll get to them later, God willing, next week, and how they're to pray, and their attitude, and how that is seen. We're to pray with an attitude that was seen in the Lord Jesus. No better example than that, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an attitude. Those who hated him, those who were crucified him, those who nailed him to the cross and spat at him. Father, forgive them. They were all there, Jews and Gentiles alike. They know not what they do. We see that in Luke 23, 34. And also let us have an attitude like other men down through church history. And one comes to mind, John Knox of Scotland, who pleaded with God by saying, this was his passion, this was his attitude, give me Scotland or I die. How's that for passion? My dear people, how we need to pray for the salvation of the lost. Can I suggest that we really get down to it and put some practical legs on this message today? Let me ask, and this is just a start point, I'm not talking about a one-off, I'm thinking about a start where the closest time the church will gather together is is collectively in our home groups. Let me ask that this week in your home groups, your leaders give special time, especially the men, for you to pray for lost people. So that's going to require you to give some thought and come to that meeting with your mind filled and your heart filled and prepared to pray for some lost soul in your life or that you know about or maybe you don't know about too much. You see, people's health and well-being is really something. Yes, it is. But folks, their eternal salvation is everything. Folks praying evangelistically, it must be a priority of the church. Because why? That honours and brings glory to God like nothing else. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, you have spoken to us today through your word. You have challenged every single one of us in this room. And my prayer is as we go from this place that you would give us a passion and a heart for lost people. Oh, Father, we've seen the ones and twos who have come to the Lord in faith, but Lord, we're not satisfied with that. We long to see more. Give us a greater heart and a passion and an attitude for lost people so that we would pray. And especially as a church, may this church be characterized as there's a church that prays evangelistically and it's a priority with that church. Help us in this, we pray. And as we go to our homes, take us there and safely and impress this message and the challenge that you have given us each one on our hearts and on our lives. These things we would ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.